The Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast depends on your generous support. A lot of work and time and energy and effort goes into these podcasts. So if you enjoy what you hear and want to hear more podcasts and would like to see this project continue in the future, please consider a donation at feministmormonhousewivespodcast.org. There's a donation button to the right-hand side where you can click through PayPal and donate whatever you would like. Every little bit helps. Thanks, and we appreciate you listening and supporting the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. One, two, three, go. Feminist, Mormon, Housewives. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and I'm a little winded because I ran upstairs to get my Diet Coke. Because priorities. So, today, we're going to continue our series, our ongoing series of the Year of Polygamy. We're right now at the beginning stages of this series. We are profiling the wives of Joseph Smith. As kind of a primer, to get people uh, familiar with the origins of Mormon polygamy and how it started, I would eventually like to do a, an, an episode that goes back in the past to set the stage of why polygamy, polygamous influences on the church, including contemporary influences that were happening in other reformations and uh, religious movements at the time. We are not the only ones, of course. But today we're going to talk about one of my favorite women. She was the plural wife of Joseph Smith. We don't have the exact number, but she would have been around four for the purposes of our series. We're counting her as episode number four. I've really started to become attached to some of these women. The reason why I care so much about them and their histories is I feel like Mormon history is shaped mostly by the men in the history, especially Joseph Smith. And uh, a lot of the critical things that we have today, including doctrines, policies, laws, movements, uh, and the fact that we're in the West, they were all influenced by these women who are largely forgotten, and they sacrificed so many things to be erased in history because they were part of a controversial practice. And I don't really think that's fair. So we are always trying to highlight these women and hopefully help you out in dissecting and understanding the issues of polygamy, if it can be understood. So we are going to go on with episode four, but if you haven't already, go back to episode one, start with Fanny Alger, and move your way forward. As always, you can follow the written text on the blog feministmormonhousewives.org, and I would recommend that you all buy Todd Compton's book in Sacred Loneliness to begin as a primer. There are other ones too, like Nauvoo Polygamy, uh, Joe Smith Papers It's going to be coming out in more depth with this. Uh, Mormon Enigma, um, Andrew Jensen's book. There's just tons and tons of resources out there, but I would start with Todd Compton's. That's a really good primer for what we're doing here. So let's go ahead and go into Zina's story. As you can see on the podcast site, we have a big, beautiful picture of her, which I think is fantastic. Uh, Zina Diantha Huntington Jacob Smith Young. That is going to be her full name. She lived quite a life, and she would uh, she would be with many men. Not many men. She would be with several men in her lifetime, which uh, maybe that's why I like her. Is it seems that the power the power dynamic of polygamy, which can be so harmful to women, was sort of tipped in her favor. 
maybe that's an exaggeration. She was always still the wife in the 19th century, which was a really terrible power dynamic to be in. But uh, let's let's get into it. Um, this woman is, you know, she would serve as a midwife in Utah. She was a general president of the LDS Church Relief Society. She was a social activist. She married Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. So Zina Huntington was born in Watertown, New York on January 31st, 1821. And so we're coming up on her birthday, January 31st. So maybe you can stop and think a moment about Zina Huntington on January 31st. She was the eighth child of William and Zina Baker Huntington. Zina grew up a busy and active girl, and she was taught a lot of household skills, like a lot of the girls her age, like uh, spinning, and she learned how to make soap and weaving, and she received a basic education. She was very talented musically, and she learned how to play the cello, which uh, was also, I think, made her stand out from some of the women her age. In 1835, when she was 14, her family was contacted by Hiram Smith and David Whitmer. They happened to be missionaries of the LDS of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints at the time and contacted the family with the exception of the her oldest brother, the entire family jo- joined the newly formed church. So this was in 1835, so it was still very new. Zina was actually baptized by Hiram Smith on August 1st, 1835. So the family became quite close with the Smith family, and after receiving some advice from Joseph Smith Sr., Zina's father sold their property and relocated to church headquarters in Kirtland, Ohio. Zina was uh, listed as a member of the Kirtland Temple Choir, which would have been an amazing experience. Um, Nineteen months later, they move again to far west Missouri. Um, and when they arrive at Far West, it's this time where there's great violence between Missouri residents and these, you know, new Mormons that are so foreign to everyone with all these rumors starting to swirl. Uh, Missouri Governor, uh, Governor Boggs issues the extermination order. Zina's father helps coordinate the evacuation of church members to Illinois. And then during an 1839 cholera epidemic in Nauvoo, Zina and her mom get really sick. Her mom dies, but she recovers, Zina recovers, after receiving care in the home of Joseph and Emma Smith. Zina would be 18 years old at the time. In 1839, um, after they're in Nauvoo, let's see, so they arrive in Nauvoo in 1839. They have this uh, cholera, maybe malaria epidemic that affects all the Nauvoo settlers. About the same time, Zina meets a young man. His name is Henry B. Jacobs, and he's talented and handsome, and he is also a musician. So they have this this connection. So they're so they start courting, as as you will, and um, she's courted by him. Sometime during their courtship, it said that Z- that Joseph Smith explained to Zina the principle of plural marriage and asked her to become one of his wives. Zina writes that she was conflicted about the proposal and her budding relationship with Henry, who she had a lot in common with. Here is what she wrote, quote, Oh, dear heaven, grant me wisdom. Help me to know the way. Oh, Lord, my God, let thy will be done and with thine arm about to guide and shield and direct, end quote. Zina actually declined Joseph's proposal and she chose to marry Henry. And she and her fellow musician, 
uh, were married on March 7, 1841. Zina later writes that within a month of her marriage to, to Henry, Joseph sends word to her brother saying, quote, Tell Zina I put it off and put it off till an angel with a drawn sword stood by me and told me if I did not establish that principle upon the earth, I would lose my position and my life, end quote. Joseph further explained that, quote, the Lord had made it known that she was to be his celestial wife. So she had just gotten married. She was a newlywed. She's already feeling conflicted. And she gets message through her brother that Joseph has told her this. Joseph saying that an angel with a drawn sword comes and says, you got to do this or you will lose your position in your life. Zina chose to obey the commandment. And on October 27th, marries Joseph. She marries Henry on March 7th, marries Joseph October 27th. At the time of her marriage to Smith, she was about seven months pregnant with her child, Zebulon William Jacobs. She later recalled, quote, When I heard that God had revealed the law of celestial marriage, I obtained a testimony for myself that God had required that order to be established in this church. I made a greater sacrifice than to give my life, for I never anticipated again to be looked upon as an honorable woman by those I dearly loved, end quote. She continues on, quote, It was something too sacred to be talked about. It was more to me than life or death. I never breathed it for years. Now, this is, this is an issue that I take. This is me editorializing a little bit. There, I said that there's that small movement out there that Joseph fought polygamy, and it's based a lot of the research that the that the RLDS church used to hold to, which they no longer hold to, which was that Joseph didn't practice polygamy. And I, I resent that that, that those stories are still being told because, you know, it feels like, this is kind of a harsh word, but it feels like modern day slut shaming to disregard these women and their stories and their testimonies of the, of plural marriage and say that it never happened because it makes Joseph Smith look somehow better. I feel like we're always protecting the man and protecting him and discounting their stories and their experiences. As Zina says, she's a Victorian woman and she is terrified she's going to, uh, be looked upon as dishonorable. That was a big, big deal. It was a big deal back then. And so when I, I feel like when we disregard their, their stories, even if their testimony were given years later, you know, in the Temple Lot case or in affidavits, I think that, that we need to also weigh their stories as much as we would weigh Joseph's credibility, in my opinion. So let's go back. Zina's first, so she, she's married. She never breathes about it. She knows it's secret. She's conflicted. She's torn. Uh, it's said that her first husband, Henry, is aware of the wedding and they continue to live in the same home. So you, you have to admit that, imagine the conflict that Henry must have been feeling as well. He believed that, quote, whatever the prophet did was right without making the wisdom of God's authorities bend to the reasoning of any man, end quote. So they have their first son and then they have another son, Henry Cheriton Jacobs, on March 22nd, 1846, almost two years after Joseph Smith dies. But over the, over the next few years, Henry would go on several missions, uh, to Chicago, Western New York, and Tennessee. Um, and this, this is something else that has become sort of a joke amongst, um, 
I guess, progressive Mormons or historians that Joseph would send you away on a mission and then when you came back, he would be married to your wife. And I think it kind of comes from this as well because, you know, here, here Zion and marries Henry and they have this relationship, this newlywed relationship, and then he gets sent off on all these missions. Um, Henry really missed his family, and that's evident in his letters home. Even one of his missionary companions, John D. Lee of Mountain Meadows fame, said, quote, Jacobs was bragging about his wife and two children. What a true, virtuous, lovely woman she was. He almost worshipped her, end quote. Uh, when Joseph was, was killed in Carthage, Gina, Zina recorded this entry in her journal, quote, Joseph lawyers and endeavored to make them secure, done in all their power for their safety, especially lawyer Reed. Oh, there ever to be remembered awful day of, of 27th of June, 1844. The men of Carthage drove off some of the brethren and at that point of bayonet and swore they would kill Joseph. The governor knew of it, yet he left them in jail with a light guard. Took a number of men, came out here. About the time they arrived here in Nauvoo, that awful scene took place. About a hundred men with painted faces burst open the jail door, shot in. No man entered the room. Joseph discharged three of the barrels of a six-shooter. Hiram was shot first in the head or under the left eye. Shot Joseph through. He leaped from the upper window of a two-story building. Brother Willard Richard started to follow him. But seeing that he must fall upon the enemy's bayonet, desisted. Brother Taylor is wounded. By the miraculous hand of God, Brother Richard was not hurt, but bullets flew like hail in a violent storm. They were both shot twice. Thus, in one day, about three or four o'clock, fell the prophet and patriarch of the Church of Latter-day Saints, the kind husbands, the affectionate father, the venerable statesman, the friend of many, of mankind, by the hand of ruthless mob mixed with the centers. O oh God, how long wilt thou avenge the innocent blood that he that has been shed? How long must widows mourn and orphans cry before thou wilt avenge the earth and cause wickedness to cease? Wilt thou hasten the day, O Lord, in thine way, own way? Wilt thou prepare me and stand all things come off conqueror through him who hath loved us? And give me a seat in thy celestial kingdom with the sanctified? I ask these favors for thy son Jesus' sake. Amen. So you can tell she was really hurting from that, as were many people, many saints. But she was hurting in a particular way, too. I don't know if you noticed the mentions of husband and widow. I mean, she really felt like she had that responsibility to him as a wife. And so she was mourning him not only as a prophet, but as a as a wife um, would mourn her husband. So shortly after Joseph Smith's death in 1844, Zina marries Brigham Young. Now remember in, in an earlier podcast, I told you that three men stepped forward, Brigham Young, Heber C. Kimball, and Amasa Lyman felt it was their duty to marry Joseph's plural wives and kind of help propagate, uh, their seed. So she marries Brigham Young in May of 1846. Henry was sent on a mission, um, to England. And this, this is a, this is a hard thing to imagine. So she, she marries Brigham Young. Henry gets sent on another mission, this time really far away in England. In Henry's absence, Zina begins to live openly as Brigham's wife and then starts to remain so for the rest of her life. William Hall said of this arrangement, quote, Brigham Young spoke in this wise, 
in the hearing of hundreds, he said it was time for men who were walking in other men's shoes to step out of them. Brother Jacobs, he says, the woman you claim for your wife does not belong to you. She is a spiritual wife of Brother Joseph, sealed up to him. I am his proxy, and she, in this behalf with her children, are my property. You can go where you please and get another, but be sure to get one of your own kindred spirit. Now, it should be noted that William Hall made several accusations, some of which were not clue, including that Zina's second child was fathered by Joseph Smith, and the DNA evidence disproved that. In my opinion, this particular quote is not out of character of Brigham Young. He would say several things like this later on in Utah. It's it's not out of out of the realm of possibilities for him saying, listen, you're not the kind of man this woman needs. This woman belongs to me now. You go find someone, you know, you're a weak man or something. Go find someone who was who weak like you. Henry seemed to also struggle with his arrangement and later wrote to Zina, quote, the same affection is there, but I feel alone. I do not blame any person. May the Lord our Father bless Brother Brigham. All is right according to the law of the celestial kingdom of our God Joseph. So he 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 was so challenged and felt so lonely. And you can imagine, especially if he's being challenged by Brigham Young, who would later be called the Lion of the Lord. So it's not like he was going up against someone easy to go against. And here's his wife is now living openly when he gets back on his mission. And that that would have been so painful. What a struggle. Um, her, So Zina has a third child, a daughter. And this was born to Brigham Young. This is Brigham Young's child. Her name was Zina Prezindia Young Card. And later, uh, one of the matriarchs of the Mormon settlements in Canada. Zina, Zina's daughter, Zina marries Hubie Brown, apostle and counselor in the First Presidency, until his death in 1975. In later life, Zina would comment that women in polygamous relationships, quote, expect too much attention from the husband and become sullen and morose. She explained that, quote, a successful polygamous wife must regard her husband with indifference, with no other feeling than that of reverence for love we regard as a false sentiment, a feeling which should have no existence in polygamy. So you hear that she says, love we regard as a false sentiment. There should be no use of the word in polygamy. That's an interesting take because some of the other wives of Brigham and Joseph would frame it differently. And so you can see where she's coming from. The woman had been married to someone that uh, she loved and then really kind of drawn away from that. After the death of Joseph Smith, Zina Young joins the Mormon exodus to the Rocky Mountains and arrives in Utah in September 1848. And after migrating to Salt Lake Valley, Zanny Young becomes involved in a number of public service activities. She becomes a school teacher. She studies obstetrics under Dr. Willard Richards. And as a midwife, she uh, helped deliver the babies of many women, including those of the plural wives of Brigham Young. So kind of her sister wives. At their request... Uh, she anointed and blessed many of their sisters before the delivery. So this is something cool. They would have these sort of blessings for newborn mothers. And I've, and I've seen some in contemporary, um, settings myself now, but, um, the women would come and anoint the pregnant woman with oil. They would all give them a blessing. This was not something that was presided upon by a man. It was a very female ritual. It's a, I think it's a beautiful ritual to think of all these women laying their hands on this pregnant woman's body and blessing her. Before the birth. In 1872, 
Zina helps establish the Desert Hospital in Salt Lake City, and she also serves on its board of directors. And I think she was president for 12 years. She also organized a nursing school with courses in obstetrics. In 1876, she is appointed president of the Desert Silk Association, Utah Silk Industry. And I don't know if you've heard the stories of, you know, the really exciting, the silkworm saving the day. Um, this was Zina, a group for which 30 years attempted to cultivate silkworms and mulberry trees for local production of cloth. And if you go down to the Daughters of the Utah Pioneers Museum today, you can, they have a whole little display dedicated to the silkworms and the, this early silk industry. And it's really cool. You can see some of the, the things that they did with it. Uh, Zina was also really involved with LDS temple work, acting as a matron to female temple workers. Now, remember, the temple was a lot different, and Devery Anderson's going to come on and talk about uh, the development of temple worship for females throughout the years. But a lot of the work was done in endowment houses, not in the temple. The temple served a, diff- a different purpose at the time. But Zina was involved in both. When the Relief Society was reorganized in 1880, Zina was selected as, as first counselor by President Eliza R. Snow. The new presidency was active in refining the society's organizations and functions and helped develop additional church auxiliaries, including the Young Ladies Retrenchment Association and the Primary Association for Children. And so that was like young women's and primary, basically. Then Zina gets super active in the temperance and women's suffrage movement. movement. So she was an she was an activist. So when we hear someone like Sister Dalton say in contemporary setting that, you know, women know their roles, they will thus see no need to lobby for rights. It's interesting because our early foremothers were very active in lobbying for rights. They were, in fact, Utah was critical in getting the vote. These women, our women, our people, our foremothers were some of the critical people that uh, helped get the vote. And there's this great picture where you can see some of the early women in the church, Emmeline B. Wells, Zina, Eliza R. Snow, sitting with Susan B. Anthony to get the vote. Super cool. In the winter of 1881-82, Zina attends a women's conference in Buffalo and a National Women's Suffrage Association convention in New York, which is a big deal. In addition to Eliza R. Snow, Zina is counted as one of the other prominent women in Relief Society, including Bathsheba Smith and Emmeline B. Wells. In 1888, following the death of Eliza R. Snow, Zina succeeded her as the Relief Society's third general president and served as president until her death in 1901. In 1891, she was a vice president for the Utah National Council for Women. So she was very involved in women's activism. And I think that that is super cool for her. Zina dies on August 28th, 1901 at age 90. She lived a very, very long life. And everyone always asks what happens to Henry. So Zina separates from him when she goes with Brigham Young. Um, but she never formally officially divorces Henry. And Henry would go on to complete his mission and eventually enter polygamy himself. The Henry aspect is hard. It's a hard thing to deal with. Originally, you have Von Brody, who who really believes that uh, Henry knew about about the wedding because he would later travel with John D. Lee, like I said, and he was just always, you know, gushing about his wife and the fidelity. But then you have Cannon's research, which ultimately says that Henry signed a paper relinquishing his right to Zina for eternity. The slip he signed is still in the records of Salt Lake City Temple. 
Um, so I would say it's pretty good to assume that Henry did know about the wedding and that he was conflicted but faithful enough enough to do that. Henry's story is complicated. We do know that he came west in the Brigham Young Company and he dies August 1st, 1886 in Salt Lake City, Utah. He would marry, I think, Sarah Lawrence in Nauvoo, Asinette Babcock, and Mary Clausen, who's from California. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a sad story. A lot of, a lot of people get upset about this because Henry did struggle with it naturally. But again, there's a lot that we don't know about the inner workings of their relationship. Not that I'm defending it. I'm just saying Zina obviously chose to go with Brigham for whatever reason. And Henry eventually, you know, marries, marries into plural marriage as well. Anyway, back to Zina. She had such a rich and full life, especially in the Utah period. It's where she really blossomed and flourished. So if you want to know more about Zina, I would encourage you to read more about the early Relief Society history, women's suffrage in Utah, the exponent, the primary, the silkworms. She is everywhere. She was a powerhouse, a powerful woman. So I appreciate you listening to her story, and we look forward to having you listen next week when we chronicle at least one or two more of the women that first started living in polygamy in the Mormon church. Thanks for listening.